Humans are funny. We grow plenty of food, enough to feed all the mouths on the planet. But, staggeringly, a third of it is wasted. Add to this the fact that a third of the global population currently goes to bed hungry each night, and another third are overfed, and the bizarre nature of how the planet functions is abundantly clear. It's a mismatch that is widely ignored, and it's a mismatch that desperately needs to be solved. But, thankfully, the problem of food loss and waste is on the radar of a lot of people. Earlier this year, the subject of food loss was high on the agenda of a dinner hosted by BASF's Farming the Biggest Job on Earth campaign. I think food waste might be the single biggest thing we can do to make a difference. In the sense, I don't think if you're struggling with money, and so many of us are, then buying cheaper food is the answer, because all that does is push the problem down the road and down to the other challenges in the food system. That's Ben Ebrill from Sorted Food, an online food collective with a huge YouTube following. To Ben, the problem is clear. In an age when food prices are rising and resources are set to become more and more scarce, simply trying to produce more food is not the solution. Cheaper food is not the answer. We just need to be better at using up all the food we buy. So shopping smarter, planning better, and having the skills in our armory to actually do more with the food we do buy so that we don't throw a third of it away. Because by throwing a third of it away is exactly the same as saving a third on your food bill. Welcome to the science behind your salad, brought to you by BASF. In each episode, we explore technical innovations and breakthroughs in agriculture to enable farmers to produce the best food they possibly can in the face of challenging conditions, a changing climate, a rising population, and at a time when geopolitical tensions are the highest they have been for a very long time. So today we're tackling the elephant in the food production room, the amount of perfectly good food that doesn't reach the mouths that need it. Currently about 3.1 billion people cannot afford a healthy diet, whilst over a third of all food produced, that's around 2.5 billion tonnes, is lost or wasted every year. The Boston Consulting Group estimates this wasted food is worth 230 billion US dollars. So today we're looking at ways to approach this loss, loss that occurs at every level, on the farm, in transit, in store, and by us, the consumers at home. Should small-scale tweaks to an already complex system be at the heart of tackling this food loss and connecting those without food to that food that is being lost? Or is the system in need of a complete overhaul? We'll hear from farmers, scientists and a maverick on the future of food who provides his insight on what could and perhaps should be being grown. You have the humble sea squirt. It's like a muscle without the shell. It's like ridiculous how fast they grow. But first, how did we get here? In order to understand, we have decided to look at China. After all, they have a massive number of mouths to feed. And China has had to face huge challenges over the centuries that have affected its supply of food, not least its vast population. Hong Yuan explained to me how China went from farming to famine and then to overproduction. You know, over thousands of years from history, China, Chinese learned to how to cultivate and how to harvest the grains and food on its own way. So over history from thousands of years, 
we do not see many times in history that China had real hunger. You know, as an agricultural country, the farmers, they grow for themselves. But many times, too, there were famine, mainly because of natural disasters, such as the uh, flood, the plagues of locusts, and wars, and of course, sometimes humane factors, political reasons that caused hunger. During the Second World War, there was a huge famine in 1942. In central China, there was drought. The, the yields from the farms were only one-third of the normal years, and many of the food or the grains were caught up to the military. That caused great shortage in the food supply, and a lot of people died from starvation. 1.5 to 3 million people died in a year. In recent history, during the People's Republic of China, there was a three-year period of um, natural disaster. 1959 to 1961, over 10 million people died in three years because of uh, starvation. At that time was a government policy of, they call it, great leap forward, and there was insufficient or inefficient distribution of food with the country's planet economy. And, and now, Hong Yu, so in modern times, what are, what are the issues of, of feeding the population and any losses that happen either pre-harvest or post-harvest? So during the 50s all the way to the 80s, uh, China had a great uh, growth of population after the war. Feeding people was always the problems or concerns of the government. After the war, the families were encouraged to have more kids. It's quite normal for every family to have multiple kids. My parents have three children, but our neighbors, some even have more than 10 kids uh, in a family, 12, 16 even. Every family or every person has his own portion of food allocation, certain amount of grains or wheat per month. And for meat or for oil, uh, we get our coupons. By the end of 70s to early 80s, uh, there was um, uh, a changing of um, farming system that the farmland, they are allocated to each household. This land is yours. You grow whatever you want uh, in a way you want. So this is Great incentive to grow better and more, to feed the families. They have surplus that they can sell into the free market. The late 80s uh, to the early 90s, the government released a lot of uh, control over food supplies. China started to import lots of food items, meat, grains, dairy, all things from other countries too. So far, there's no, no uh, shortage. People get more than they can eat. It's going to be lots of waste. In 2022, the grain food, the wheat, the rice, the corn, the grain food loss or waste in China amounted to 173.6 billion kilos by end of November. That is 18.7% of the total agricultural output of the year. And direct waste of grains, 9.99 billion kilos, is 10.2%. And Hongyu, what sort of losses are you seeing once people have bought 
the produce that they want. The biggest losses from tables, uh, not from families, but mainly from restaurants, from catering, from public institutional or company uh, treats. There's lots of waste. Chinese, we are not like uh, Western people. You order your own share. We order when we are eating together. We order a table full of food, more than we can eat. But it's changing. You know, we're learning, and uh, there are lots of measures taken or incentives or um, or advocates from the government not to waste food. And we are improving. So, what happens to that waste? And what about those billions of hungry mouths around the world? A phenomenon that has risen to the fore in recent times is the food bank. Waste or excess food or donated food is collected and distributed to those most in need. To many communities, they are vital, and Kenya is no different. Michael Kaloki recently visited a food bank in his home city of Nairobi. You can see there are a lot of vegetables straight from the farm. These came up last night. I'm here at the food bank in Kenya warehouse in Ruaka area, just uh, outside the city of Nairobi. And with me is John Gathungu, who is the CEO of food bank in Kenya. John, just looking here in your warehouse, I see stacks of uh, shelves here with with food. What is this? Is this broccoli or what? This is, is broccoli. Yeah, ah. so straight from the sea. They are still very fresh, but these are from uh, the park house now for export. But uh, due to the standard, the cosmetic standard set, that's why they are added up here. But you can see they are very fresh. And also onions uh, that we also receive from them. So we get everything that is edible and that is in surplus. We have maize flour and all assorted kind of uh, food items, uh, beans, uh, we have uh, like rice, even uh, the cooking oil, wheat flour, we have uh, sugar, and this is all from donation. We have an agriculture recovery program. We partner very closely with the large-scale farmers and the small-scale farmers. What you are seeing there, all these are as a result of our agriculture recovery, and these are all donations. Uh, they are the surplus from the farms that we have received from them. My name is Njeni Mwikadi Thomas. What have you received uh, today here? I've received sukuma, cabbage. Sukuma is kale in English, okay, and yes, cabbage? Yes, and cabbage and uh, uh, unga. Unga is flour? Yeah, flour. And so you are amongst uh, a group of women here, elderly women and yes. elderly men. And as uh, you're talking to me, some of the women here are just leaving this particular area, cutting their kales and cabbages and, us, and food packs. All these women are just in Kizokoro. The other group is from Uruma. Okay, so one group lives in this Kizokoro, yeah. slum area, Kizokoro, and then the other group is in the adjoining slum of yeah. Uruma. Uruma. We began our agriculture recovery program in the year 2020. Uh, when the world was hit by uh, COVID-19. Initially, as a food bank, we only used to recover the dry food only. We decided that we should venture into other areas where more food was going to rose. We visited some of the farms. Our agriculture recovery from then has been our key area now of food uh, sourcing. 
during COVID, what happened? There was uh, food that had been planted for export. And uh, most of it, because there were no export going on, most of it was going to loss and most people had lost their job. So we came in and secured everything and started feeding even those people who had lost uh, their job. And uh, what food banking is, is doing is that we are working closely with the small scale farmers uh, so that we are able to recover everything that they have in their farms. Uh, instead of it going to loss, we feed it to the beneficiaries, to our beneficiaries fisheries. How important are these vegetables for the health of your family? You can answer in Swahili. Okay. Wanaweza kula, wanapata two vitamin kutoka kwa isomboka. Yeah. So she's telling me that her family will be able to get vitamins from the vegetables that she has collected here today. Generally, with the income that you make from the casual jobs that you get. Is it enough for you to buy sufficient food for your family? Kwa siku, wanalipa miatano au miasita. So miasita if you buy a hunger, that is just to push maisha. Okay, so you're saying that from your casual work, you'd make about 500 shillings, which is about $3 a day. And that is basically not enough, but it's just enough to get by, you say? Not enough. I have to go around. I can't stay idle like that. In a country where such a wide range of crops are grown, it's hard to listen to Michael's conversation with Jane, the lady he met in the food bank. Kenya is the third leading exporter of fresh produce, such as cabbages, onions and mangoes. Smaller farms grow corn, potatoes, bananas, beans, peas, cabbages, kale and chilies. The country's agriculture is a mix of large producers and small farms, some producing just enough for their families. Despite the hungry mouths, there is still wastage not only from the crops that don't make it to the supermarket because of the grading system, but also due to the fact that some parts of Kenya offer difficult conditions once the crop is harvested. And this is where a new project can make a difference. Georgina Ruku is from BSF in Kenya. And before she explains the concept, let's hear her share her love of one particular vegetable that Kenya grows a lot of. The potato is the second most important crop in Kenya and it's it's delicious. It is one of the best crops <laughs> in the world. I come from the Kikuyu community in Mount Kenya region. We make something called mokimo. It's basically uh, potatoes and maize and then beans or peas, whichever you prefer. And then you just boil them, mash them together, add a few greens, pumpkin leaves for extra flavor and it's amazing that's the traditional way and also roasting potatoes it is absolutely superb the major growing areas are located in the mount kenya region and uh, was in gishu majority of the potato farmers are actually small scale farmers there are some who are larger but they mostly organize themselves into farming cooperatives because it's easier for them to get market 
as a cooperative rather than as an individual. Being the second most important crop in Kenya, and Kenya being an agricultural country, 50% of our GDP is from agriculture. The focus on improving the post-harvest losses on potatoes and improving the quality and yield on potatoes has been quite significant. Currently, as of 2021, we were producing approximately 1 million tons annually. And the government intends to increase this yield to 2.5 million tons. So there's been a lot of work, a lot of research that has gone into increasing yield and quality. But then with increasing yield, now we have a storage problem because we have all these potatoes, we have nowhere to store them. They end up getting rotten before they get to the market. Or then when they're being transported, they end up being manhandled and they end up being spoiled before they get to the market. Uh, so we have losses of about 30 to 35% in the warmer areas and losses of about 20% in the colder areas. So that's significant loss that can go back to feeding the people and to benefiting the farmers as well. So as soon as they're harvested, they have to be sold immediately. So we end up with a saturation of potatoes in the market because they can't be stored. And then down the line, we end up with a scarcity of potatoes because all the farmers have gotten rid of all the potatoes they have. The prices go way high because there's no potato in the market. If we had stores, you see, we could have a continuous and stable supply of potatoes throughout the year at a stable price. Africans are a very innovative people. We've always been a culture where we find solutions from our local area. We are calling it the Post-Harvest Losses Project. Through our process, we want to build an affordable and sustainable storage container. So we will take a refurbished 20-foot container, uh, fabricate it to, to make it into a store, and apply spray foam to provide insulation. So we will use BSF system called Elasto Spray which is an environmental-friendly insulation solution, part of our new generation insulation. The insulation that we're going to provide, we can really control the temperature conditions within the store. And we're also hoping to increase the storage duration because currently they have it one to two months storage duration, and we want to increase it to at least four to six months. We are working collaboratively with farmers cooperatives. We run the project with them just to assess whether we can reduce the post-harvest losses from 25% to about 10% and the impact that it's going to have down the line. You can just stick it on a, on a lorry and it gets sent to any part of the country, which was part of our agenda, making it scalable, easy to build, and also very mobile for any part of the country. The agenda is to teach the farmers how to create such storage containers for themselves. So we are very keen on spreading the knowledge to them so that they can do it for their farms and do it for other horticultural crops and spread it out throughout the regions. First reports suggest that this could be a very effective way of storing the harvested spuds. The insulation protects the potatoes from heat and cold and can be vital to safeguarding the supply of the crop throughout the year, preventing it from being wasted. And it's not just post-harvest where crops can be protected from loss. One of the most devastating viruses in the agricultural world is the tomato brown rugosa fruit virus. Here's Rafael Mora to tell us why it was important that the virus should be blocked. The rugosa virus is an aggressive plant virus that transmits very easily. 
just by touching one infected plant and then uh, touching another. The virus uh, can affect at any stage of the crop, at uh, any part of the plant. The first uh, symptoms can include uh, some decoloration and uh, spotting with uh, some green areas, with uh, wrinkles and uh, wilting. It uh, totally depreciates the fruit for commercial value. It is very persistent and um, difficult to eliminate, so to be alert and react very fast is critical if uh, required. The virus was rapidly spreading worldwide since it was detected for the first time in Jordan in 2014. And since then, it has spread to many of the main tomato production areas around the world. The virus is devastating. It can cause a loss of up to 70% of the value of production. Rafa is based in Miami in the USA, and he put this into context for us. According to the USDA, in 2019, the total volume of greenhouse tomato coming into the US was uh, 1 billion kilos, the vast majority coming from Mexico and Canada. Imagine if we lost uh, 70% of this production. It means 700 million kilos. That's a lot. Some uh, sources estimate also the value of the retail market for fresh tomato in the USA in around 2.3 billion US dollars. 70% of that, it's a lot of money. But a part of the value is the fact of uh, living consumers without such an important food in our diet. Not long after the identification of this virus in 2014, we at BSF started research looking for sources of resistance. Although at that time, the impact of the new virus was not yet known and also not the speed it will become a global problem. However, a quick intensification of research in combination with agile decisions in variety development has led us to launch the first resistant variety in 2020. The resistance provides to the plant the ability to keep growing and producing fruits without symptoms of the virus and totally commercial. This play a key role in reducing food loss. Rugose virus can damage up to 70% of the production in non-resistant varieties. It's a crucial breakthrough that the whole industry has been working towards it and it has been highly expected. So having resistant varieties makes possible to grow tomatoes in an economical and sustainable way. We have highlighted just two novel approaches that can play their part in bringing down the amount of food that is wasted each year. Getting the storage of the crop right stops excess wastage after harvest and preventing disease running rife through a glasshouse or field allows farmers to grow more in the first place. But food loss occurs at every level. Huge amounts of food are wasted downstream, be it down to the way that big retailers select what's good enough to be sold or by us, the consumers, purchasing too much food in the first place. And all the while, we still claim that food is too expensive. Maybe in a time where resources are scarce and our pockets are not so full, we should consider our relationship with food and try to respect it and nurture it. And perhaps we should even begin to consider changing the entire system. That is what Johan Jorgensen, the food tech expert from Sweden, believes. And it's hard to disagree with what he says. When you look at big food or, or the food system that we have today, 
it is interesting from so many perspectives and most of them are not good uh, so what we did you know back with the green revolution we we invented a way or we refined a way that was invented in the neolithic ages uh, to farm and then we just beefed it up on steroids uh, using all available technology and financing and subsidies and what have you and that led basically to keep calories coming from very few crops food currently lives in a fake economy it's not a market economy it's some sort of a, an abstract planned socialistic almost system uh, and if we don't see uh, not just you know what food is and what's on the plate but um, the effects of food then suddenly we realize that the food system is not what we think it is it's something entirely different and when we transform it there will be a bunch of new companies and phenomena coming up and that will make the current food system look old and stale i think and not very productive we shouldn't just place the blame on the big food companies or big ag companies because they only exist in a system that we democratic nations have built around them so so basically we need to take a deep breath and look at what is food to us in our in our societies and what type of food system do we want to have and how should we then build everything from you know subsidies to educational systems our own relationships to food and and i mean when you take a look at food today from the perspective of for instance biodiversity it's, it's like a horrible horrible system and and uh, but at the same time you can see that if you manage soil or manage planet's resources you know with a focus on biodiversity or a focus on ecology you know you can have tremendous tremendous yields but you cannot run over those fields with harvest combine in a very industrial sense uh, you know at a given time of the year and you cannot just dry it and store it and ship it in bulk tankers all around the world so you really need to think or rethink the entire system if we do that then i mean food is plentiful and abundant all around us and we can have a magnificent taste experiences so so i think you no know, we just mistreated food and if we all got in on food again for instance by you know trying trying to taste new stuff or eat more things perhaps we can reconnect ourselves to nature again food is the big lever that's the one that we have that can really shift our ourselves and our relationship to planet earth back into some sort of a benevolent state again and if you can't cook then maybe you could join together and break down barriers with friends and family delicious food is certainly a way of reducing waste should we always cook ourselves or should we perhaps bunch together you know a couple of families and and let the best one cook for for everyone i think it is 70% of sweets don't like to cook and they don't do it well so people think it, what they have on their plates is disgusting so they waste it whereas if someone is fed something delicious they tend to eat it all right and ask for more so the notion of deliciousness probably needs to be put into the equation again And Johan believes there is a world of food to be produced outside the parameters of conventional farming. I look at at solutions for 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 producing food. The most promising ones are not the, you know, high-tech greenhouses or anything else. It's it's actually going out, they're going from the engineering mindset to a discovery mindset instead. And it says, okay, there is a lot of stuff out there that we don't know anything about. 
so the three most uh, you know promising things I've seen out there is water lentils uh, being produced in amazingly large ponds. They double in size every 24 hours. That's crazy stuff. You have the humble sea squirt. It's like a mussel without the shell. You know, with just a few thousand hectares, those farms out in the sea, you could replace all the meat in Sweden. It's like ridiculous how fast they grow. And then you have one of the funkiest stuff I've seen so far is a growing technology called Sinico Culture, which is, you know, the founders are Japanese rocket scientists, for real. And it's basically, you could say, permaculture on steroids. And uh, so if you have a hyper diversity on your field you also get hyper productivity so and i've seen uh, these guys take uh, you know one of these patches of land in burkina faso sub-saharan africa and they just populate it with enormous amounts of different seeds and they go from zero to edible rainforest in a year or less than that and uh, the productivity on that field is 150 to 200 times the regular productivity of that field i mean like it's it's mind-blowing and and once you take a look at that you realize that okay so the yield equation that we're entertaining in traditional farming is all wrong it's not about increasing you know the number of bushels served from a specific field it's rethinking it all together but then again you have to think outside your machine park of harvest combine and the tractor because this can only be done not the artificial intelligence but human intelligence and humans need to go out in those fields and pick what's ripe and ready and then go home and cook them it's an entirely different way of doing things but you can have amazing taste experiences and, and you can have everything you need and want honestly i think that the the transformation of food and transformation of energy are at the same scale right and apparently we can fix energy or it seemed at least to be be working on it but we don't want to work with food. I don't know why. Could it be all these pictures of food that sit so ingrained in our brains that keeps us from seeing outside this little tiny food box that we have today? Food for thought. Johan's projections for what needs to happen in the future to ensure a safe and secure food supply should focus the minds of food tech innovators as they plan for the coming decades. We have so many experts and scientists and alternate visions for ways to feed the world in a secure way that reduces waste. And their foresight should be listened to to give us more options in a changing world. But what about right now? That was something that was on the agenda of the Biggest Job on Earth event hosted by BSF. Professor David Hughes is an emeritus professor of food business at Imperial College London. He believes that the current financial climate is having a detrimental impact on the nutrition of those on a tight budget. I think often the challenge for farmers is to link with those who consume their food. I think there's a bit of a divide. They want to produce good food, healthy food, uh, but then there's a the reality at the consumer end when, uh, when what can they afford? And you get this intriguing thing at the moment where, uh, and I think it's a communications problem actually from a UK point of view, I think it's also larger than the UK, where people say fresh food is expensive. Actually, often it's not, it's not. But what the issue often, from a consumer point of view, is how quickly can I convert that into a meal? 
I've got children, they want to eat now, they want to, and all I can afford it is this, how can I put that on the table? And often that means that we don't buy, we don't take the right decisions on food in terms of health and nutrition. But we might take the right decisions on terms of price. And so, you know, you've got this conflict at the moment, and uh, let's hope we can get over this. Here we are in a high food price inflation environment, around the world, frankly, and as far as I can see, not just in the UK, but in many countries, that people actually go for the, the least cost high energy foods, and they're not necessarily the most healthy foods. And people at the low income end are always going to be challenged in terms of healthy foods. You know, for example, uh, Brazil, uh, uh, where inflation is at 100%, said we won't allow food exports of certain cuts of beef to try and keep prices down at home. That doesn't work, and it makes the whole situation even worse. So uh, in food crises, governments often respond irrationally. And uh, we have, uh, what can we do about that? I don't know. Put in new governments. Food policy needs to be long-term rather than short-term aspirations of most governments we see around the democratic world. But if just a few of you, our listeners, begin to consider your relationship with food, then there is a reason to be optimistic. Right now, how we treat food at every level is a cause for concern. Perhaps we should respect our food in the same way that we do our friends and family. Maybe we need a better connection with the planet than we currently have. These are important questions for us all to ask ourselves. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad with me, Jane Craigie, brought to you by BASF and Fresh Air. Follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.